Shema Yisrael. Welcome to the broadcast outreach of Living God Ministries with Aaron Budgen. Aaron discovered Jesus is his Messiah while preparing to be a rabbi. He now teaches for several organizations and is the teaching pastor for Living God Ministries. Strongly distinguishing between the Old and New Covenants, Aaron presents the scriptures from a Judaic and historical frame of reference. Join Aaron now as he reveals the reality foreshadowed and the new life we can now experience because of what the Lord Jesus accomplished for us. I'm presenting a series of programs on the subject of Hanukkah, the Feast of Dedication, and today's program is a continuation of the previous broadcast. Now, in the previous broadcast, I was explaining that Seleucus IV had sent his treasurer to Jerusalem to take the gold out of the temple treasury. Heliodorus was not able to obtain that gold because God intervened and prevented him from taking the gold out of the treasury. So Heliodorus returned to Seleucus IV, but then assassinated Seleucus, probably because he was not able to fulfill the decree that Seleucus gave him to obtain the gold. So when he returned without it, he decided to assassinate Seleucus IV. Heliodorus obtained power. He took power. He took control of the kingdom at that time, but only for a short period of time because Seleucus's brother, Antiochus IV, obtained the help of the king of Pergamon and overthrew Heliodorus. Heliodorus fled and went to the region of India, and I explained that in the previous program. Antiochus IV then takes power over the Seleucid Empire, and he is recognized as the villain in the traditional Hanukkah story. He's the one who is officially recognized as the king of the region who the Jews revolt against. Now, Antiochus IV was obligated to fulfill the Treaty of Apamea that was established by his father, Antiochus III. Antiochus III had a son, Seleucus IV, who was in power for about ten years, and then Antiochus IV takes power, and he pays off the debt about two years later in 173 B.C. It was at that time that he finally fulfilled all of the obligations to the Romans according to the Treaty of Apamea. And so while he continued to provide tribute to Rome, it certainly was not as much as it was once before. And so at this time, the Seleucid kingdom was able to begin to recover and be reestablished as a power, even though it was still under the authority of the Romans. Now, these events were prophesied years in advance. Now, I don't normally spend a lot of time in prophecy, and one of the reasons why is because my people have a relatively poor record of correctly interpreting prophecy, and so I would rather not add to that stellar record. However, one of the things that I really enjoy about prophecy is being able to look at the prophecies that, in my opinion, have already been fulfilled. I know that many people spend time looking at the prophecies that have not yet been fulfilled, probably because they're trying to organize their lives to be more compatible with when they expect certain prophecies to actually be fulfilled. But I personally prefer to spend my time focusing on those prophecies that have already been fulfilled and wait with anticipation to see exactly when and how the other ones will unfold. But in the book of Daniel, in Daniel chapter 11, 
I believe we have a description of these events. Beginning in Daniel chapter 11, verse 20, it says, There shall arise in his place one who imposes taxes on the glorious kingdom. But within a few days he shall be destroyed, but not in anger or in battle. And in his place shall arise a vile person to whom they will not give the honor of royalty, but he shall come in peaceably and seize the kingdom by intrigue. With the force of a flood they shall be swept away from before him and be broken, and also the prince of the covenant. And after the league is made with him he shall act deceitfully, for he shall come up and become strong with a small number of people. Now, I personally believe that the person who is referred to in verse 20, is Seleucius IV, that he is the one who imposed taxes. And these taxes would be necessary in order to fulfill the obligation of the king to the Roman government because of the Treaty of Apamea. And I personally believe that that's the fulfillment of that. But when Antiochus IV obtained power, he did not obtain power by war, but by intrigue. And I believe that this intrigue referred to in verse 21, has to do with the assassination of Seleucus IV by his treasurer, Heliodorus. And then Heliodorus was in power only for a short period of time, and then he was removed by Antiochus IV when Antiochus IV took power with the help of the king of Pergamon, which was a relatively small force. But it was enough to support Antiochus IV to be able to enable him to take power. And so it's my personal belief, I sincerely believe, that these events are the fulfillment of Daniel chapter 11, beginning in verse 20. And so I would like to mention that as something that I think you should study a little bit more. Take some time to look into that, because I believe you'll find that interesting also. Now, when Antiochus IV took power, he had some decisions to make. And one of the decisions that he had to make was, who will be the new high priest in Jerusalem? Onias was the high priest, but because of the situation that was taking place, because of the circumstances of Heliodorus being sent to Jerusalem to take the gold, and then he left without the gold, and then there was this assassination, and a new king is now in power, because of all of that, Onias was out of town at this time. He was doing what he could in order to reestablish the credibility of the temple and the priesthood. But Antiochus IV, instead, he established a new high priest. But what was the criteria that Antiochus established in order to select the next high priest? Well, I don't know if he established any formal criteria, but what I do know is that he established a high priest by the name of Jason, who had no interest in spiritual things at all, from what I can tell. He had no interest in the things of God or being a representative of God to the people or a representative of the people to God. He had no interest in these things at all, from what I can tell. What he was interested in was the power and the influence and the authority, the ability to obtain money from the people and distribute it for various things. And so what he did was he went to Antiochus, Jason went to Antiochus, and he offered Antiochus 330 talents of silver plus another 80 talents and that he would spend 150 talents 
to build a gymnasium where Greek philosophy could be taught. That was what he offered. He said, listen, I'll provide you with a lot of silver if you will establish me as the high priest in the temple in Jerusalem. This is what I will give you and this is what I will do for you. Effectively, what he was promising was all of the silver in the temple plus 160 talents. That's how all the math worked out. So Antiochus IV agreed to allow Jason to be the high priest in the temple, which tells me a lot about Antiochus, that Antiochus was not that interested in a high priest who was honorable like Onias was. He didn't care about the living God. He had no interest in honor or righteousness or integrity. He was only interested in the money. Follow the money. This agreement tells me a lot about the character of Antiochus IV and, of course, Jason, that this is about money. So, Jason goes back to the temple, and from what I can tell, he did fulfill what he promised by providing Antiochus with a lot of silver, worked on the gymnasium. And then in 172 BC, Jason sent his brother Menelaus to deliver some tribute to Antiochus IV. Now, there were actually three brothers, Jason, Menelaus, and Lysimachus, and they are all involved in the events that I'm about to describe. I just wanted to tell you in advance that this has to do with these three brothers. Jason made an agreement with Antiochus IV for a certain amount of money. He sends his brother Menelaus to deliver some tribute, but when Menelaus reached Antiochus IV with a tribute, he made a deal with Antiochus. He said, listen, if you will allow me to take my brother's position as the high priest, if you'll throw my brother out of that temple and allow me to take his place, I will provide you with another 300 talents of silver. That's what Menelaus offered when he was there to deliver tribute on behalf of his brother Jason, who was the high priest in Israel at this time. Antiochus agreed. He said, okay, great. If you're going to provide me with more money, then you can have the job. You can go back. I will send troops. He sent troops with Menelaus back to Jerusalem. And so when he arrived, they removed Jason, or perhaps Jason fled before they got there. I'm not absolutely sure. Jason left. He went to the region of the Ammonites, which is to the northwest across the Jordan. The troops took Menelaus to the temple, but when they got there, there wasn't any more money in the temple. Menelaus did not have the 300 talents of silver that he had promised to Antiochus IV if he would allow him to take the position of the high priest. So the troops do not allow Menelaus to take the position of the high priest. He didn't give them the money. They didn't give him the priesthood. Jason is gone. What do they do now? What they decided to do was take the other brother, Lysimachus, and put him in power temporarily until Menelaus could find some way of obtaining the 300 talents of silver that he had promised. And so what Menelaus did was he went throughout the temple and he acquired a number of the artifacts there in the temple, a number of the things that were used for the temple services, and he tried to sell them off and so that he could obtain the money and then give that money to the soldiers there who would then establish him as the new high priest 
That money would be taken to Antiochus IV as payment that had been promised, and then things could proceed from there. Now, while Menelaus was looking for things to sell, Lysimachus asserted himself as the high priest because he was put in that position temporarily, but he was an evil man. He was a horrible man, a terrible person, and the people were so upset with who he was and what he did that they revolted. There was a major revolt there in Jerusalem. Lysimachus had about 3,000 troops, but the people were able to overcome the troops, and then they executed Lysimachus somewhere near the temple treasury. So there was a revolt by the people because of Lysimachus being the priest at that time, and he was such a terrible priest that the people revolted and then executed him, and then things proceeded from there. Now, Menelaus was still not able to obtain the money, And so what he did was he went to Egypt to ask for some help from Ptolemy, who was in authority there. Ptolemy provides him with some money, and he also provides him with troops in order to go to Jerusalem and be established as the high priest there in Jerusalem. Now, I don't know the exact agreement that was made, but what I do know is that Menelaus was eventually recognized as the high priest in Jerusalem at the temple there, He owed a debt of some kind to Ptolemy. I don't know what that was. And the high priest Jason was with the Ammonites waiting for an opportunity to return to Israel, which I'll explain in a few minutes. So these were the circumstances concerning the high priest at the temple in Jerusalem, that there was competition between these three brothers, Jason, Menelaus, Lysimachus. Lysimachus was assassinated Menelaus was established with the help of Ptolemy of Egypt at this time, and Jason was with the Ammonites. Now, it didn't take very long before Ptolemy wanted to assert himself in the region. Apparently, Menelaus owed him something, and so Ptolemy wanted to assert his authority because of this debt that was owed. So word was sent from Ptolemy to Antiochus IV in 170 B.C., that he was about to demand Palestine and Phoenicia, the region of Palestine and Phoenicia, that Seleucus III had taken through war. King Ptolemy was about to do that, and so Antiochus IV responded. He responded, and he sent troops to Egypt to establish his authority over the region. And so he went to Egypt. He waged war against Egypt. There wasn't much of a fight. He just simply went in. And he established Ptolemy as a puppet king at that time, made some official agreements, and then he went back. Now, Ptolemy did not abide under the agreement that was made, and so in 168 BC, Antiochus IV went again to wage war against Ptolemy, but when he tried to go into Alexandria this time, there was some intervention. The Romans sent an ambassador to demand that Antiochus withdraw from this war and return. So what the ambassador did was he drew a circle in the sand around Antiochus and demanded that Antiochus had to decide to withdraw from this campaign before he left the circle. And from this circumstance, we have the saying, drawing a line in the sand. It comes from this situation when an ambassador of Rome drew a circle in the sand around Antiochus IV when he was attempting to invade Egypt the second time to establish his dominion over Ptolemy. 
the Romans intervened and sent him back. Now, when he went back, there was a lot of confusion in the empire because there was a lot of uncertainty concerning what happened. Antiochus had gone through a significant expense to send this army to Egypt, and yet now he is going to withdraw. There was an assumption made that perhaps Antiochus was dead. Maybe that was what had happened, and so the troops were returning, a new king was going to be established, and the empire, the kingdom, could be reorganized from there. That assumption was made by many people to include the former high priest Jason, who was with the Ammonites. When he heard about this withdrawal, he returned to Israel. He gathered together about a thousand men, and he attempted to overthrow Menelaus, his brother, and take control of the temple. And I can understand this. He probably was assuming that if Antiochus IV was dead, the new king was about to be declared. If Jason was able to obtain power and authority there in the temple before the new king was established, then the new king might see Jason in that position and decide not to change things, just to leave him in the position that he was in. So that's what he did. He left the region of the Ammonites, gathered together about a thousand Judean soldiers, went and waged war against Menelaus, but Menelaus barricaded himself, and so he wasn't able to get to him. Antiochus IV heard about this revolt. But this revolt was not a revolt from the people, because of the uncertainty with regards to whether or not Antiochus IV was still alive, this revolt was between the two brothers, Jason and Menelaus. This was not a revolt of the Jews in Israel, the people in Israel. It had nothing to do with the people of Israel revolting against Antiochus IV. This was a battle between Jason and Menelaus for the priesthood. Antiochus IV heard about this, and so he sent his army into Jerusalem and instructed them to take all of the wealth out of the temple and to kill anyone who got in their way. So they went to Jerusalem in 167 BC. This revolt took place, and they went into Jerusalem and they killed 40 thousand Jews. It took them about three days. It was a three-day battle. 40,000 Jews were killed. About 45,000 Jews were then taken as slaves and sold as slaves, and the temple was emptied. All of the artifacts in the temple were taken out. All of the gold that was on the walls was stripped off of the walls. All of the gold and silver that was there, the lampstand, the menorah, the altar of incense, Everything of value was taken out of the temple and taken up to the north to Antiochus IV. Jerusalem was effectively wiped out. Not because the people revolted, but because of this battle between the two brothers, Jason and Menelaus, over the priesthood. That's what this revolt was about in 167 BC. Now, this is very important because many people assume that it was the people who had revolted, but it wasn't. It was just simply a small conflict between a couple of thousand people who were trying to obtain the authority of the priesthood over the temple. So Antiochus obtained all of the artifacts, all of the wealth that was in the temple. When the soldiers returned to Antiochus, the total count was about 1,800 talents of gold that was taken out of the temple and brought to Antiochus IV. 
Now, when this took place, Antiochus got much more aggressive with the people in Israel. It was at this time that Antiochus instituted new laws, and these new laws were designed to effectively outlaw Judaism. Now, the reason for this, the reason for this aggressive action was to try to unite his empire, to try to unite his kingdom so that the people could be one and be more effective as a people who he was in authority over. To do that, he took the philosophy from his forefather, Alexander the Great, which he was never able to implement, but it was a philosophy that Antiochus IV held to, and that was that if the people could be united under a common philosophy or religion, then that would be an opportunity for the kingdom to prosper, to be strong, to be effective, that this could be a good way to unite people together. So he decided to outlaw Judaism in order to unite the Jews with everybody else, and so there would no longer be this division within his kingdom. Now, to do this, he established three specific laws. The first law was that the people were no longer allowed to obey the Sabbath. They had to work on the Sabbath. The second law was that they could not observe the dietary laws, and he enforced this by requiring people to eat things that were in violation of the dietary laws. And then the third law was that they were not allowed to perform circumcision. And these laws were well selected because it probably would not take more than a few generations before Judaism would no longer exist if the people did obey these three laws that Antiochus IV established. They did not obey these laws, and that led to the real revolt that resulted in the Maccabean Wars. Now, I don't have enough evidence to suggest that Antiochus IV had some personal interest in exterminating Judaism. I don't have any evidence for that. From what I can tell, Antiochus IV established these laws for the purpose of unifying his kingdom and increasing prosperity. That's what I see personally. Now, was there a satanic influence involved? I believe there could very well have been. In fact, I would be surprised if there wasn't. Because if he was successful, if Antiochus IV was successful at instituting these laws, at enforcing these laws, then Judaism would eventually disappear. The scriptures would eventually disappear. This was a very serious matter because the Messiah was coming. The Messiah was going to come in about 150 years. And so if the devil had any interest in preventing the Messiah from coming, this was the time. The main reason why I will say this is because there was a prophecy that was given through Daniel that was recorded in Daniel chapter 9 concerning the time when the Messiah would come. And so if there was enough disruption in Judaism, in Israel, if there was a significant disruption to the extent where there would not be an identifiable nation, a functioning nation with a functioning temple and all that would go along with it, then I don't believe that the Messiah would find it easy, if I was to put it that way. I don't think it would be very easy. In fact, in many ways I could say it would be impossible for the Messiah to accomplish the task that he had to accomplish. And so these events were not just about the survival of the Jews. 
These events were also about the survival of the nation, so that the Messiah could come out of the nation. This was not just about the Jews and the temple; it was about the Messiah, the Savior of the world. In Daniel chapter nine, it is written in verse twenty-five. I'll begin there. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem. Until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and sixty-two weeks. The street shall be built again, and the wall even in troublesome times. This is a very important prophecy. I would like to encourage you to read it. This is found in Daniel chapter nine. I would like to encourage you to focus on verses twenty-four to twenty-seven. Those are very important verses that I can't teach on because I don't have enough time in this program. But I would at least like to mention this. To describe the significance of what is really taking place here. Now, there is a person who wrote a very good book that I would encourage you to obtain and study if you would like to look into this further. His name was Sir Robert Anderson, and he wrote a book called *The Coming Prince*, where he did an excellent study. And many people have done very good studies concerning this. As I have studied the book that Sir Robert Anderson did, I personally believe that it's the best reference that is available. There's only one thing that he left out, though, and that has to do with when the Passover actually took place. If you were to study this, just make a note that the one piece of information that he did not include, and we also don't have available, is when was the barley ready to be harvested? In Jerusalem, because that would skew his calculations just a little bit. If we include that piece of information to know when the barley was actually ready to be harvested in Jerusalem, according to the new moon that began the Hebrew calendar for that year, and for that reason, I have to say that his conclusions are very good approximations, but they are not necessarily exact. Either way. Antiochus the Fourth establishes these three laws for the purpose of outlawing Judaism, so that he can unite his kingdom, so that his kingdom could increase in prosperity. Some of the Jews did concede and began to live in obedience to Antiochus the Fourth, but there were other Jews who refused to obey these decrees, and because of that. A revolution began, but not in Jerusalem. It actually began somewhere else in a small town, and I will tell you about this in the next broadcast. You have been listening to the broadcast outreach of Living God Ministries. You can hear all of our programs for free. Through our radio archive at livinggodministries.net, that is livinggodministries.net. Do help us develop new radio programs and continue broadcasting on this and other radio stations. Send your contributions to Living God Ministries, P.O. Box three eight three five three, Colorado Springs, Colorado eight zero nine three seven, or use the donation link on our website. LivingGodMinistries.net. That is LivingGodMinistries.net.